0: Okay, Except that I'm not going to talk this week about arguments for God, except in general terms, because next week Niv Lobo will be talking about uh, knowing that God exists. So this is something of a sort of preamble, uh, bridging between uh, what uh, Dr May has just said and what happens next week. In uh, figure uh, one on the uh, right there, my right, um, the statement, uh, the cat is on the mat is true uh, because the cat is on the mat. Uh, This is the truth, the fact, the reality uh, is that the cat's on the mat. And that's why the statement, the cat is on the mat, is true. Uh, In point uh, two here, the statement, the cat is on the mat, is false uh, because, as you can see, the cat is not on the mat. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that reality, or facts of the matter if you like, is that about which truth is. Uh, Aristotle's definition of the truth uh, can be given in words of one syllable when we translate it into English. If one says of what is, that it is, or of what is not, that it is not, he speaks the truth. But if one says of what is, that it is not, or of what is not, that it is, he does not speak the truth. (laughs) (laughs) J.P. Moreland, American Christian philosopher, says that the essentials of the concept of faith, uh, whether that's uh, the biblical concept of faith or a secular concept of faith, The essential idea here is confidence or trust. And one can have faith in a thing, such as a chair. You're all putting your faith in your chairs as we speak. Or you can have faith in a person, such as a a parent or in God. And one can have faith in the truth of a proposition, of a statement, of a truth claim. When trust is directed towards a person or a thing, it's called faith in. Or well, philosophers talk about having belief in something or someone. When it's directed towards the truth of a proposition, you know, the cat is on the mat. If I direct my trust towards that proposition being true of the facts of the matter, then that's called faith that, or belief that something is the case, that the statement is true. So we have faithful belief in and faithful belief that. And both types of faith uh, can be, but needn't be, grounded in knowledge, in what one uh, believes one knows to be true. The standard textbook definition of knowledge that you kind of get in Philosophy 101 at uni tends to be something like this. Uh, Knowledge is warranted or justified true belief. Knowledge is a belief that's true, plus the fulfilment of some additional necessary condition that goes under this label of justification or warrant. However, some philosophers argue that true belief is sufficient for knowledge, making warrant perhaps a separate, uh, if related, topic. And philosophers who do think that you need more than just having a true belief in order to know something, disagree over the nature of what that more actually is. Uh, Going into that uh, debate would take us too far off track tonight. But take this point away from, from this. Philosophers disagree about the nature of knowledge. But they know that they disagree about the nature of knowledge. This shows that we can know things even if we don't know how we know them. <laughs> Moreland again, he says, I can know some things directly and simply without having to have criteria for how I know them. Without having to know how or even that I know them. We simply identify clear instances of knowledge without having to possess or apply any criteria for knowledge. We then reflect on those instances and go on to develop criteria for knowledge consistent with them. But the criteria are justified by their congruence with specific instances of knowledge, not the other way Around. You don't want to put the cart before the horse here. So, faith in, faith that, can be grounded in knowledge. There's a discussion there, but there are clear examples of knowledge at least. And Bertrand Russell made a distinction between having knowledge by acquaintance, knowing in a sort of personal experiential way, and knowing by description knowing in a a more sort of removed, impersonal way. Perhaps this would be the difference between knowing God by direct religious experience and knowing about God through uh, studying the cosmological argument for his existence, say. William Lane Craig helpfully notes that argument and evidence play an essential role in our showing that Christianity is true, whether we're showing other people or showing ourselves, as it were. But a contingent and secondary role in our personally knowing Christianity to be true. He says the proper ground of our knowing, in that sort of by acquaintance way, you might say, Christianity to be true, is the inner work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Well, that's different from being able to show someone else if they don't have that knowledge by acquaintance of course Richard Dawkins emblematic of the new atheists in criticising faith as quote blind trust trust in the absence of evidence or even in the teeth of evidence as Alistair McGrath says as we've referenced earlier Dawkins' idiosyncratic definition of faith is itself an excellent example of a belief tenaciously held and defended in the absence of evidence, indeed in the teeth of evidence. To the contrary, it's a delusion. Uh, The classic Christian tradition, says McGrath, has always valued rationality and does not hold that faith involves the complete abandonment of reason or believing in the teeth of, at least overwhelming, evidence to the contrary. Professor Dallas Willard, for example, defines faith as commitment to action based upon knowledge of God and God's ways. Or David Marshall and Timothy McGrew in uh, the lovely uh, little book True Reason Uh, Say, by faith, we mean trusting, holding to, acting on what one has good reason to believe is true in the face of difficulties. Sort of gumption and stickability to stick by your guns, as it were. Now, the scientific demand made by new atheists like Richard Dawkins that uh, every rational belief to be counted as such must be justified by empirical, scientific-type evidence uh, is too narrow a view of how we know things, because it's self-contradictory. That demand that every belief to count as rational must be justified by some evidence is self-contradictory, because it can't itself. That claim itself is not one that you can justify by empirical evidence. Uh, or another way of looking at it would be that if you tried to follow that rule, you would generate an infinite regress because your justification for your belief would itself need evidence, and so on, and so on, and so on. And you'd never get anywhere. Indeed, this, this scientific demand that every rational belief must be justified by empirical evidence. It's just open to obvious counterexamples. back to Morland's point about clear instances of knowledge. Uh, philosophers talk about properly basic beliefs like that the law of non-contradiction is true. Or mathematical truths, 2 plus 2 equals 4 we had earlier. Uh, moral truths like it is wrong to torture small children just for fun. Or ascetic truths like rainbows are beautiful. Or or truths like the physical world has an objective existence rather than merely being part of my dream reality. Or that the physical world didn't just pop into existence five minutes ago, complete with every apparent sign of great age. There's absolutely nothing you could do empirically to disprove that hypothesis. And yet, don't we all rationally believe that the universe is older than five minutes old? Or I just, I remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. Or perhaps, as Alvin Plantinga argues, God exists. Might be a belief that comes under this kind of category. If you want to pursue that, uh, maybe look at uh, Plantinga's recent Knowledge and Christian Belief book as an introduction. Sam Harris, the the neo-atheist writer, uh, gets uh, this. He says in his book, The Moral Landscape, that intuition denotes the most basic constituency of our faculty of, of understanding or knowing, indeed. He says, while it's true in matters of ethics, it's no less true in science. He says, the traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core as any judgement that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies upon our intuition to find its feet. You can't prove that logic is logical before you use logic in order to be logical about things. You just have to see that that's logical. So let me talk a little bit more in this second half of my talk about faith, and particularly the New Atheist misunderstanding of faith. The Greek word translated in our Bibles as faith, or sometimes as belief as well, is the word pistis. Pistis. Now in Greek mythology, pistis, was the spirit of trust, of honesty, of good faith, who escapes from Pandora's box. You know, the the myth of Pandora's box. opens the box, and Pistis leaves the box and abandons humanity. The Roman name of Pistis was Fide, Uh, from which Latin root we get the English term faith. Now, pistis in the Greek has a wide range of meanings. It can mean belief, persuasion, credence, conviction, assurance, honesty, integrity, commitment, and trust. And the English word faith reflects this diversity. Um, Looking up in the, the dictionary, you'll find that faith means allegiance, loyalty, fidelity, belief in the traditional doctrines of a religion a belief in something for which there's no proof and trust now note that only one of these dictionary meanings of the English word faith even approaches Dawkins near-atheist definition of religious faith Sam Harris tries to back up this near-atheist misdefinition of faith by going to the Bible. Prove it from the Bible with a proof text. And he goes to uh, Hebrews 11 verse 1 which he says uh, defines faith as quote the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read in the right way he said, i.e. in completely the wrong way as I'll show. (laughs) This passage seems to render faith entirely self-justifying by which he means entirely unjustified, uh, blind faith. But look at the preceding verses. This is Hebrews 10, 32 to 36. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Talking in context here about our possession of home in the kingdom of heaven, in the heavenlies, so on. So, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere in faith so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now, faith is, and so on. So, Hebrews 11.1 1 is saying that having faith means trusting God to deliver on his promise of heaven mentioned in Hebrews 10.36. Hebrews 11.1 does not say that having faith means trusting God in the absence of any reason to trust him. Indeed, Hebrews 10.34, we read of those to whom the letter was addressed that they knew that they had better and lasting possessions in heaven. Uh, So Hebrews hardly presents faith as being antithetical to knowledge, And indeed, Hebrews expects faith to be connected to belief and knowledge, to reason and evidence. Although, that's not what faith as a term per se is talking about, is about. So, let's go with uh, uh, Harris's uh, quotation of of the, the version of Hebrews that he uses up there. And look at some of the Greek terminology. We've looked at pistis already now faith is, the assurance, the hypostasis. Uh, this is a Greek term that appears in ancient business documents and means an exchange of, of legal assurances guaranteeing the future transfer of possessions described in a contract. The term needn't describe one's subjective mental assurance that something's true, but one's possession of a contract or a title deed that objectively guarantees a certain outcome. And uh, translating the Greek alekos as conviction uh, likewise puts the emphasis on the mental state of the faithful, but it can also be translated as evidence, or indeed proof, which points to an objective state of affairs. So I would argue that objective translations, as it were, fit the context in Hebrews much better, especially given that the term elekos can in particular convey the idea of bringing forth evidence that demonstrates something contrary to what superficially appears to be the case. So I would say that Hebrews 11.1 one is actually much better translated as faith is a guarantee of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen, or as the Wycliffe Bible translates it, uh, faith is the substance of things that be to be hoped, and an argument of things not appearing. This fits the context of verses 7 to 12, uh, which mount an argument to encourage readers to continue trusting God, if you look at verses 7 to 12. Uh, Basically, the argument is, consider the Old Testament heroes of faith who trusted God when he told them to act in the light of promised realities that they couldn't see at the time. People whose trust, his faith, was proven well-placed by subsequent events. The same God of the Old Testament is asking Christians to act in the light of his promised salvation in present circumstances of persecution that look like the opposite of being saved. So shouldn't we infer on the basis of God's past faithfulness, of these Old Testament examples, that future events will vindicate the Christian's present trust in God's promise of heaven? That's the argument that Hebrews uses. So as Peter Grice says in True Reason, properly understood Hebrews 11.1 speaks of the scope of faith extending beyond present visible evidence and transient circumstances, but resting upon prior evidence that things will indeed be better in the future. So this passage does not present faith and reason in tension with one another. Hebrews is really using faith, pistis, to mean faith in as an active trust in God, a commitment to acting in a certain way. And such faith certainly can and often does marry faith in God with beliefs about God that Christians think they know are true. And such faith certainly should give appropriate respect to evidence and reason and so on. Again, Hebrews 10.34, talking about knowing, and Hebrews 11.7-8, arguing for such faith, trust in God. So I would say that Hebrews 11.1, contrary to Sam Harris's interpretation is completely consistent with the repeated biblical emphasis that we can see from the verses I have up on the screen here throughout the Old and New Testament on the importance of reason and evidence. Theistic arguments, to get that other branch of our graph at the beginning, come in a wide variety. Uh, I've put up a number of certain sort of basic categories here And each of these categories come in a sort of family of argument. There's no such thing as like the uh, cosmological argument, the design argument, the argument from religious experiences. They're all sort of half a dozen argument forms or such. Uh, I would say that this list represents a good uh, 20 or so. Uh, arguments that I could think of for the existence of God. There's many more arguments for God than uh, most members of the general populace, I would say, are even aware exist. Um, Arguments from positive and negative religious experience, consciousness, intentionality, rationality, uh, morality, beauty, causal arguments, teleological arguments, arguments from miracles like fulfilled prophecy or the resurrection of Jesus, and so on. So don't put your faith in, in Dawkins or Dennett's of this world. Dennett's another New atheist uh, philosopher. Um, Dennett praises Dawkins for flattening all the serious arguments for God in uh, The God Delusion, admitting that he kind of passes the ball to Dawkins because he doesn't spend much time in his own book talking about these kind of things. Um, but uh, Dawkins' treatment of these arguments is very superficial. Um, Dawkins devotes 37 pages in The God Delusion to talking about the arguments for God, mainly by straw manning them in a way that shows clearly he doesn't even understand the argument that he's attacking. Um, of uh, the nine arguments defended at some length in a recent book called The Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology Arguments for God, a big, thick tome uh, published by Wiley Blackwell, um, there are nine arguments for God defended in that book. Of those arguments, only five appear in the God delusion and a superficial level. So even if Dawkins completely demolishes all of the arguments that he discusses, there's a whole lot of arguments that he doesn't even discuss. So when Dennett says, oh, he just completely trashes all the arguments for God, I think both of this just shows that they're not really aware of the wealth of argumentation that there is out there for God these days. Um, and here is a selection of the kind of materials you might go to to get an introduction. Uh, also, websites like Bill Craig's ReasonableFaith.org, my own website PDSWilliams.com. I'll give you a free booklet by Craig that talks about five arguments for God if you want uh, this evening. Uh, books like my own, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, the Blackwell Companion to Natural Philosophy uh, Theology. There, it's a big, thick tome, but at a more introductory level. Things like William Lane Craig's uh, book On Guard for Students would be an excellent place to start. But I don't want to preempt NIV next week, so I will stop there. <laughs>